0: This is Ed Hess, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Ed Hess. I'm a professor at the Darden Business School, and um, I engage in research and teaching and writing and consulting about organic growth, innovation, and learning from a culture process and system viewpoint
1: and the uh, and the and the new book around that is uh, I love I love it aptly titled learn or die uh, early on I don't remember I actually don't remember who told this to me um, but it stuck with me was this idea that um, everything in the world everything in the universe is either sort of growing or dying or learning or dying and so the choice really is that sort of learn or die even organizationally I think at this point there have been people that have been, you know, sounding the alarm as we shift from industrial to, to knowledge work. But I think even before that shift, even in the industrial era, you had to be whether you use the term or not, you had to be an organization that was learning and changing and morphing if you wanted to exist. Um, otherwise, you would find yourself aptly prepared for a world that no longer exists. Um, so I love I love that regard. I feel like can we t- actually can we talk a bit about this term, learning organization? Because I feel like it's a it's a it's a construct that I think gets over oversimplified, as it were. I mean, Peter Senge did an awesome job sort of bringing this to mind uh, on the learning organization. But then I think a lot of people started claiming they have learning organizations because they have good training, right? Or they have learning organizations because their people are really smart and we have tuition reimbursement, right? When you say learning organization, you're meaning something really specific about the organization as a whole. Tell us what you mean when you say that.
0: An organization which has put in place a system. In that regard, Peter and I are the same, but my, I, I diverge from Peter Senge's landmark work in that I, I view learning as attitude or, if you will, mindset plus behaviors. And the learning organization basically has a culture and processes which help humans overcome our natural cognitive and emotional proclivities and cognitively the science learning states shows that basically we cognitively process information which confirms what we believe we are a big confirmation machine we don't generally process information which differs or contradicts our mental models and emotionally we are def- em- if you will defensive reasoners or thinkers because we protect our ego a learning organization creates an environment and puts in place processes that helps individuals overcome their natural inclination to be suboptimal learners. Hmm.
1: I and I love the. I mean, I'm obviously listeners of the podcast will know I'm obviously biased. I'm biased towards people that acknowledge a confirmation bias, which is a weird way of saying it, but that's that's what I mean. And I I think. Um, I guess my biggest question is something that nobody—I I feel like you might be able to answer for me, but not a lot of people do—is is almost why do we have this confirmation bias, right? You'd think from a from an early survival uh, mentality, or from even a modern day thing, you'd think the the logical thing would be to actively looking out information that tests your theories, but yet what we actively look Four is information that makes us feel good by confirming what we already sort of believed. Why do you think that develops in people? And why is well, it so connected to the emotions, too, I guess?
0: Well, I, I, think, that, I think that as we, uh, one, I'm not sure I'm smart enough to give you the answer, but let me try, all right? I, I believe that as we developed and our world became more complex, we were overwhelmed by the stimuli coming from the world. And our brain basically is a pattern matcher. We try to match patterns. And basically, it's far easier to confirm and match than it is to look at the universe and pick out all the anomalies or contradictions and try to figure out what that means. And And I think it's what we know now from what it takes to overcome confirmation, what I call the the huge confirmation bias, okay, the natural proclivity to be a, a fast, efficient, lazy, reflexive thinker, we know now that basically you and I can't overcome that by ourselves. We need a trusted other. Uh, and that goes all the way back to the work of uh, uh, Nobel laureate Herb, Herbert Simon and you know Dan, Daniel Kahneman has written about that, that it is far easy to, to help to pick out other people's thinking uh, issues than it is our own, and in Kahneman went as far to say that he has very little confidence that we can overcome confirmation bias, and that's why in the critical thinking space, in the innovation space, learning, it has to be a team activity, and when you look at great learning organizations, they accept this fact and you see structures and team activities, and the reason you need a team is, is that it's My confirmation bias is different than yours. And if you get a diverse enough team and smart people who trust each other and are open-minded and fair-minded, you can then have those what I call uh, egoless collaborations that are basically non-competitive but striving for the truth. And this is hard stuff. And so I believe that it really goes back to the fact that the limitations in order for you know our, our our brain is a very small part of our body but it basically burns up about 25% of the energy and therefore there's only so much we can do and i think we basically have developed uh to uh be efficient processors and being efficient confirmation processors is much easier than being efficient making sense of chaos hmm.
1: You know, as you as you were explaining that, you know, you, you went back into talking about the, at the individual level, but I see I I see the same explanation in organizations. It, there was a time when a given manager could probably go their entire career without the competitive environment of the business changing all that much, right? Whereas now I think we live in a in a system where um, it it used to be sort of the innovator's dilemma was that somebody could be cheaper but not better but now we live in a world where you can be better and cheaper at the exact same time and that the competitive environment shifts so much that I almost wonder if confirmation bias gets heightened because we're so immersed in stuff we're trying to make sense of and it's easier to just grab on to that little piece that confirms our previous understanding of a world that isn't the world we're in anymore and that sort of leads to the organizational confirmation bias. Does that make sense? I I feel like it's a similar explanation.
0: It, it is a similar explanation and I think when you layer on top of that uh, especially if you're dealing with a public company uh, the the uh, maniacal focus in public companies on short-term results and the maniacal focus on efficiencies and productivity uh, which drives if you will a, a a very focused close-minded short-term view I think all of that basically uh, layered on top puts immense pressures on managers today uh, to you know that oh keep your eye on the eight ball and make your numbers this quarter, and which in you know all of that leads to the issue at some point in time whether there's a a new competitor or a competitor that is learning faster than you and I think that your point is well taken the speed of change. Seems to have accelerated greatly in the last 10 to 15 years, and the the thing that 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 sort of I find interesting is it appears based when you do from the research and technology and the 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 experts, the next 10 to 15 years, the pace of change is going to be in the business world metamorphic. It is uh, I call it a technology tsunami. Um advanced robotics artificial intelligence with smart machines the internet of things uh... ultimately deep learning and nanotechnology the the, the result i believe of all of that is is that if you will in, in an organizational sense operational excellence is going to basically be done through technology and be commoditized and innovation is going to be the key differentiator which is going to make it even more imperative that organizations be true learning organizations and and put in place a culture and processes to overcome our natural humanness and you know we haven't talked about um, emotions and emotions are such a critical part about it that the two biggest learning inhibitors are ego and fear and one we defend our ego and two we're we're afraid of failure. We're afraid of making mistakes. We're afraid of looking bad. We're afraid of being fired. And all of that is is enhanced in an environment that is that where we have a, a you know, a constant downsizing and re-engineering and uh, a, a maniacal focus on the short-term and uh, defect-free operational excellence. And oper- operational excellence is important but operational excellence if you will is going to become st- table stakes in the in the in the coming decade or so it's going to be table stakes if you're not operationally excellent you're not going to even be in the game but to win in the game you're going to have to be a great innovator
1: you know and that's one of the things i love about uh, learner die is is the addressing of the sort of emotion right i'm am a huge fan of systems have been for a really long time both organizationally and operationally but also in a, in a personal life like uh, i don't i don't believe you set goals i think you change systems and the systems take you to the goals in general and that's and that's very fit discipline that's very it's that's not a new concept what is new is i think very few people have addressed w- w- the need for the emotional side we know that when we're making personal change you know this is a terrible analogy but it's the one i'm grasping at right now but you know primetime television is filled with shows like the biggest loser people trying to make deep changes in their life and the recognition that to do that is an emotional process and yet so often we, we just assume that all organizations are inherently rational and logical and therefore the decision to implement new systems has nothing to do with the emotional part, which I love in Learn or Die we sort of address, no, we need to talk about this because this is almost the bigger barrier to fighting confirmation bias is the willingness to accept that you're already wrong about stuff and then actively go and explore whether or not you are, but how yes. do we do this at an organizational level? How do we do this? How do we address the emotions and how do we build systems that, that learn, but also address the, those fear uh, emotions that you talked about?
0: Well, you, 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 your point is well made and, and emotions have basically be, if you will, undervalued in the business world. I mean, how many meetings and whether it's consulting or in school or in business have you been in where, you know, someone will say, let's not get emotional. Um, um, and the reality is, and this is this is the big advancement since since uh, uh, Peter Senge's work in the last twenty five years in neuroscience. We used we used to think in psychology and in studying the brain that our emotions were in a separate part of the brain from our cognitive abilities, and that they were separated. And neuroscience now has proven to us that our emotions are intertwined in every aspect of cognitive processing and we now know that if if you're in a positive emotional environment or you have positive emotions you feel positive emotions that that enhances all sorts of cognitive processing including creativity and the quality of your judgments and being open-minded If you're in a situation where you're where there's negative emotions or you're fearful um, that inhibits creativity and innovation and good judgments, etc. And so you've got to take into the environment the work the, the, that makes the work environment mission critical. And the research basically says that a, a great learning environment has to be a robust, positive emotional work environment. And the research basically also says that that, that relates highly to the same type of environment that uh, produces high employee emotional engagement in the business world. And it, and it comes back to meeting basic, in, I would say, innate emotional motivational needs. And I talk about it in the, in the, in the book, the landmark work of um, uh, Decky and Ryan. On that, you know, all of us as humans humans, have the innate need to have a feeling of autonomy that we're trusted, listened to, and we have some control over our destiny. Relatedness, that we have deep emotional engagements in like what Gallup Q12 calls best friends at work. We relate to people, all right? And then the need to be effective, to grow as a person. And lastly, there is a, a, a... ancillary need of affiliation to be affiliated with something meaningful and purposeful and so when you look at great great learning organizations whether it's Google, Pixar, WL, Gore, uh, Bridgewater Associates, that that, um, etc. what you find is is that they basically understand that humans constantly have to be comfortable and feel as Abraham Maslow said, a person will learn to the extent he or she is not crippled by fear and to the extent they, they feel safe enough to dare. And so you have to basically eradicate fear of making mistakes. In great learning organizations, within financial tolerances that are set, in great learning organizations, mistakes are learning opportunities. If you notice in the Intuit chapter in the book, and two, it doesn't even use the word mistakes. It calls mistakes surprises. Re, ex, if you will, experimentation surprises. Um, you know, it's, uh, if you look at one of Pixar's favorite uh, uh, cultural statements, you know, our mental models are not reality. And uh, you look at uh, Bridgewater, okay, and they b- basically say mistake, mistakes are good. That's how we learn. And it's, it's basically true. And, uh, and so... you're you're exactly right when you went back to the to the basic point learning organizations changed the definition of being smart from it's not how much you know it's being good at not knowing it's accepting the, the the science that we're not good thinkers but also that we are basically there's lots more we don't know than we do know and if you know how to learn and that's not rote memorization that's how to basically uh, have the courage to enter uncertainty and the unknown and use the right processes to go explore and find out and be data-driven you're far better off if you basically adopt the position everything Decouple your ego from your beliefs. I'm not talking about values. I'm talking beliefs. Decouple your ego from your beliefs and every, treat everything you believe as conditional, subject to change by new data or better data. Okay? If you have that attitude that I'm not what I believe and define yourself as I'm going to be a good critical thinker, and innovative thinker, I'm going to be open-minded and fair-minded, and I'm going to have the courage to explore and I'm not going to be emotionally defensive. You'll you can you have a higher probability of succeeding as an individual and an organization with that attitude than the attitude that mistakes are bad to be punished. Um, and uh, you can that you don't have freedom or permission to speak freely or permission to fail. Yeah, I think I think it's a huge
1: point and a huge example of how the environment that we shape for ourselves and for our people will affect that because of the the role that uh, environment has on our emotions, et cetera. It's one thing to build a system and to pay lip service to learning. It's a whole other thing to get people comfortable with the idea. I think it was I mean I think it was Aristotle that said the beginning of all knowledge is to realize you know nothing, but to to create a culture where you the entirety of your people celebrate that is a hard thing, which is why we still, why, why Aristotle's
0: saying is still powerful uh, all these years. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about it, a lot of, a lot of what, what is the essence of what we're talking about goes back to Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. And, um, and, and the, the fascinating thing, I was with, you know, I was with uh, doing work with 75 topics, the top 75 executives of a public company two or three weeks ago, and I asked the question, how many times last week did you tell a peer or a subordinate that you don't know something? And having the, the, and being comfortable saying, a leader saying, I don't know. A leader being comfortable, if you will, saying to someone, you know, this is what I'm thinking. I need some help thinking this through. How about play devil's advocate with me? How about, let me, let me run something by you. What am I missing? I mean, this only works in organizations, this is truly a case, and you know, this is the most, one of the most, it's not as bad as Synergy, but it's all, it's walk the talk is probably pretty close, as an overused term, and under realized, but you actually, leaders in these type of learning organizations have to actually role model learning attitudes and behaviors, because people are going to watch, and if the, the if the leader and that's why in these organizations, you've you got to have complete candor and permission to speak freely without regard to hierarchy. And as you recall in the book, in the Intuit chapter, I, the title of the chapter is It's, it's Time to Bury Caesar. Intuit's been on this journey for seven years. And one of the big things is, is to change the, you know, decisions are no longer made um, by politics, PowerPoint, and by hierarchy. It's an idea of meritocracy. And, and so it's a huge transition for um, traditional theory X, McGregor theory X leaders, command and control leaders to basically become people centric, humanistic, human beings saying that I don't know it all to have, I mean, you, you, to, to lead a learning organization, you've got to basically have humility and you've basically got to have high emotional intelligence. And as you well know, those are not, those are not commonly found in the, in the business world today.
1: Oh, I, I totally agree. And it, it speaks to the need for role models and leaders to at least be comfortable with that idea so the rest of your people will. I think that's actually, that's a good note to, to transition from the book, Learn or Die, to, to talking a bit about you and ask you our questions for, for everybody. Uh, the first being, what are you reading
0: right now? Well, I'm finishing up How Google Works by uh, Eric Schmidt. And, uh, and I'm in, in the process of uh, um, Superintelligence by Bostrom, uh, who's very concerned about artificial intelligence. And then the third book, which is most, most fascinating and that I'm reading, is Sapiens by Yuval Harari, uh, which is a brief history of humankind and it is, it's a fascinating book, Um, you know, it's about, it's 400 pages, but it is a history of humankind, and it's fascinating tracing, if you will, the scientific revolution and the agricultural revolution and getting up to the point where he's talking about the possible impacts that artificial intelligence could have, which is the same issues that Bostrom is talking about and the same issues that Elon Musk has spoken about, and so thinking about whether this next generation of technology and artificial intelligence are, you know, and and it's, and I'm not saying this is the result, but there's, it's, 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 I've been thinking about whether uh, since Homo sapiens, we were one of seven different human-like, if you will, species at one time in the world, and Homo sapiens uh, evolved, and, um, and we survived primarily because of, of, the, uh, of the invention of fire, and I've said in some of my uh, tweets that, that artificial intelligence may be the biggest invention since fire, that uh, whether Homo sapiens or whether we will be replaced by techno sapiens. And so that's some of the thought that I'm looking into at the current time. Hmm.
1: No, it's fascinating, fascinating concepts. And and I think that, that leads into my my next question for you, which is you are um, the author of 11 different books. You do uh, an amazing job of, of connecting ideas that are sort of in the ether and ideas that need to be heard with uh, companies that are already doing it to use as examples. And it makes me wonder what's next for you. If that's what you're reading, what's
0: next for you on the horizon, what we're going to hear from you? Well... I don't know the answer uh, to that. There's, there's a couple of things that I'm, that I'm mulling over. The, um, I'm watching the artificial intelligence space, and I'm very concerned about the, uh, the I would call, the technology tsunami that's coming, and, and, the, and the best research out there by Frey and Osborne from Oxford University says that in the next 10 to 20 years, there's a 66 medium to high probability percent that uh, most U.S. workers are going to be displaced by technology and I'm very concerned what that means for the American dream and our society and democracy and and how that's going to be handled. So I'm spending a lot of time on that and I'm teaching a, co-teaching a new seminar here at Darden that just started this week on uh, economic inequality, the big challenge to capitalism. So I'm very, um, so I'm engaged in trying to, if you will, have some conversations in that space. The second space I'm engaged in, I've become convinced we've been talking about short-termism in the public markets and for, you know, decades, and uh, one of my earlier books, if you will, tackled the, the, the growth myths of the public markets and, and, uh, and in effect said that the public markets inhibit innovation and uh, are, too, are too short-termism. And I'm now I'm playing with the fact whether we need a different capital markets, uh, a different a new capital markets funded primarily by um, pension funds, state teachers fund, government pension funds, long term holders, if you will, to basically be a different model of raising capital for growth companies to fund innovation and, um, and lots of challenges and issues there. But uh, so those are the two things right now that that I'm that I've got in my mind that, and I don't know where they're going to lead. But they're both sort of trying to deal with the need for innovation and the need for the long term view, and then also the need, the realization that the changes coming could be quite uh, huge for us as a society, and what does that mean for business and jobs and in our way of life? Hmm.
1: No, that sounds fascinating, and, and what I really love about that is that everything we've been talking about with confirmation bias and being willing to ask questions about is, is what we believe to be true actually working in a capitalistic setting, right? You're asking those exact questions, so practicing what you preach for sure will keep an eye on it. Um, in the meantime, the book again, Learn or Die, Using Science to Build a Leading-Edge Learning Organization. Ed, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab and challenging us to admit that we don't know everything. Thank you for having
0: me. Great talk. Thank you. Hey,
1: everybody. It's Dave. Thanks for listening to the whole episode. If you want more, go to davidberkus.com slash podcast. And check out my friend Sean Murphy's Work That Matters podcast. Go to switchandshift.com and click Work That Matters podcast. Check it out.